culturally I'm African American, but if I want to solve a problem, Buddhism has a lot of answers. Welcome to this episode of The Circled Square. Today I'm speaking with Professor Jan Willis. Jan is a professor emerita of religion at Wesleyan University, where she taught for 36 some years. And she's currently a visiting professor at Agnes Scott College in Decatur, Georgia. She is the editor of and a contributor to Feminine Ground, Essays on Women and Tibet, and the author of Enlightened Beings, Life Stories from the Gandan Oral Tradition, as well as many other things. Um, she's also... Uh, famously authored her autobiography, Dreaming Me. Um, And I've particularly enjoyed teaching that book with students, reading it with students in a class about Buddhist life writing. So it is a huge honor to be able to speak with Jan today. Uh, Hello, Jan. How are you? I'm good. I'm so happy to be here. Thank you. Thank you so much for being here with us. This is really exciting. Um, as you know, our podcast is kind of focused on teaching and pedagogy and, and what we're doing when we teach about Buddhist studies in the classroom. And so I want to begin by asking just kind of if you can tell us a, a brief version of how and when you became a teacher. How did that happen? Oh, my goodness. How and when? <laughs> Where do you feel like that began? Well, I think it began early on. Uh, you, your audience should know that I was uh, raised in a mining camp outside of Birmingham, uh, wow. a town that was a mining camp that was split down the middle by one street, blacks on one side, whites on the other. We dare not cross the road. Uh, I entered school in 1954, so that was the year of Brown v. Board of Education. But that just meant in Alabama that the Supreme Court and the other lawmakers went into overdrive to prevent integration in schools. So I graduated from a still all black county high school to which I was bused in order to prevent integration, even though there was a perfectly good high school in that camp, but it was for whites only. So I want to give that as context because somehow in that environment, and I praise all of my strong black women teachers, and this will probably come up again, hopefully. Um, Somehow I developed this incredible love for two things, for math and for music. Wow. I remember when I was four years old wanting to be a conductor because we had seen uh, Walt Disney Fantasia kinds of things on TV. <laughs> and my mother was good enough to actually give in to my pleas to buy a, one of those 78 old vinyls uh-huh, uh-huh. of Wemsky Korsakoff. Wow. And I would stand in the kitchen and put it up. <laughs> and my mother would just say, what is with this kid, you know? <laughs> so, so it was because I saw math and music as having universal languages. Mm. Here are languages that can be understood by anyone who reads mm. that language, right? Wow. So, now, what I'm an just, interesting I'm, outlook, too, math and music together as being universal languages. That's brilliant. Absolutely. absolutely. Yeah. I saw that when I was young. So, so I wanted to, so math, I, I studied math and, and physics and did double time of physics and and a student from Harvard came down and took me through the Schrodinger equations. And my 
teachers just looked on in amazement, you know, that I could follow this equation yeah. going around. The, at any rate, so I, I like these things. So I didn't, so teaching didn't enter until later, the idea of, of teaching. And there are two stories connected with that. We were tracked in our schools as much many of the schools today still do. And so I was in the advanced academic track and there was a vocational track. And my, in high school, one of my teachers, and you remember all their names, Miss Calloway said to me one day, look, Jan, you're gonna get all these academic prizes, but I want you to get the all around prize. So I'm <laughs> gonna make you a cheerleader. Oh, no, 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 please oh. don't. Wow. <laughs> and I said that because I was actually afraid of the other cheerleaders. Sure. I mean, they were called, they were rough, tough, tumble girls. I'm sure. Yeah. I'm sure and they I'm, didn't love all love math quite as much. <laughs> 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 but teaching, uh, Miss Calloway said, look, you, you know all the chants, teach those girls those chants. And somehow I came up with, with methods. I mean, for cheerleaders. And I won those girls over. And so they would say, J J did, did somebody say, did he say something to you? We'll go get him. They just became <laughs> my protectors, you know? Yeah. And I thought, hey, there's something to this. Pretty great. And I feel like you're emphasizing too that early, like, a, like teaching and being a teacher is actually, it starts with natural curios curiosity and it starts with like connection, like the ability to really connect Absolutely. with people. Okay. Now, here's a heavier story about teaching. Okay. So I gra when, when I graduated, it was 1965 from high school. And that was a year that a lot of Ivy League schools were giving scholarships to black students. But those black students, they were very careful in how they chose them. Those black students came from rural, tiny um, places throughout the country. So they weren't going to be troublemakers. Mm. Oh. Why? So, what was that? It was so it was not people from cities, meaning? These, so that. Not from cities, not urban. They weren't like participant yet in the social movements? Is that. Yeah, I yeah. think that's okay. what they thought. Now, I made it somehow. I had been in Birmingham, but I was one of those faceless 15 year olds who, who, 10th graders who marched with King. So in 63, that had happened, and that transformed my whole life. I'm sure. Uh, but in 65, when I got these scholarships, the Klan marched on our home. And uh, this was something that we, we'd grown up knowing about. Klan targeted people from time to time. Almost every black man in the camp had been targeted by the Klan. They targeted young kids. I'd gone to a birthday party, <laughs> and the Klan had come and stopped it because blacks shouldn't be having that much fun. This, this was my experience. Wow. So I got these scholarships, and notice was put in the black newspaper, four sheets, but as I told you at the beginning, this camp was divided and one of the area chiefs lived in the white section and they read the newspapers, the black newspapers. And so being conspicuous in that way, having won these scholarships, 
the Klan marched on, on my family. And so it was very, very dangerous, I knew, from the beginning to be conspicuous in the South. <laughs> you know, it was frightening. So the Klan comes, 10 or 12 cars come, and I talk about this in Dreaming Me. And they slowly stop. You know, everybody knows somebody's being targeted, but they don't know who. And then all these cars and trucks stop in front of our house. My dad's at work. My mom has a little 22 caliber pistol. She's telling my sister and me to get down, try to get under the bed, and I'm glued to the window. And I can't believe what I'm seeing. They set up a cross, you know, 12, 15 foot in front, across the street from the house, in an alleyway, and they, they light it. And so I'm amazed. I'm awestruck. I'm dumbfounded. I'm gobsmacked. Because first, the robes are not all white. They're red robes and they're purple robes. And the second thing is that they're men and women and children. Ugh. Enrobed. Right. Oh. So this really strong urge came up in me to talk, go out and talk to them. I mean, I was too uh, frightened to do it and too scared, and no doubt about it. But I wanted to teach them that just as they were a family, we were a family inside this house, just mm -hmm. like them. We mm -hmm. were a family, and I wanted to teach that. And I felt this, and really it was, I mean, I didn't do it. I didn't carry through on it. But that was a really strong urge for the power of just communicating, you know? Yeah. And showing likeness and connectedness. Wow, well, Jan. So, and so recognizing their humanity, even though they're actually coming to threaten your life, right? Like, that's incredible that you're, but you're able to see them as, as, as humans. You're able to see children and women as just people in who probably. In 63, Sarah, in 63, I had marched with King and I'd taken those lessons to heart about nonviolence and about the so-called enemy. So Buddhist, you know, King's teachings that you don't hate the person. You you hate the emotion that that negative emotion, but you don't hate the person, and and that was something we had to sign on to. We had to study and train and sign on to as youngsters to be able to march with King in the Children's March in Birmingham. Mm -hmm. I mean, mm -hmm. we signed these pledges mm -hmm. that that we would try our best to not raise up in anger, nonviolence was a serious thing for King. I and mean, you could not, you know, the women, <laughs> the matrons of the church, mm. they would test us out. You ready to march? Yes, ma'am. Okay. Well, take your position over there. Hey, John, you ready? <laughs> no, John. Mm. I think you better stay and work on your Sunday school lesson. Because if you were going to rear up, raise up, you couldn't march that day. Right. You could not march that day. <laughs> right. I mean, it had to be a real thing. So all these things came together for me and teaching became something I wanted to do. Building on from that, and you kind of already mentioned like the strong kind of black women in your family who enabled who enabled you to see possibilities early and to have experiences early that would, you know, uh, but what what were who were some of your most inspiring teachers? And I'll leave okay. that really broad. I mean, I know there's probably many, 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 but but who who were one or two of your most inspiring teachers and what did they do to inspire you? There were a great many. I mean, like seven or eight. 
as I was growing up and going through school, black women teachers. Um, and then, of course, there was the Buddha, MLK, <laughs> uh, Toni Morrison, James Baldwin, uh, very inspiring teachers. But throughout my um, young education before taking the bus to take up one of those Ivy League offers to Cornell, um, I had these wonderful women teachers, Miss McCall in first grade, Miss Fisher in, in fifth, Miss Craig in seventh, Miss Hinton. And they were doing something that this, this young scholar uh, named Jarvis Givens is talking about these days. He has a book coming out soon on Carter G. Woodson, mm. who was the founder of um, Black History Month in the U.S. Mm. First, mm. it was Black History Week. <laughs> had to fight to get an extended course. <laughs> <laughs> but a historian, you know, he founded the Journal of African American History, or Negro History, I guess it was in his day. Well, Jarvis Givens, in writing about Carter G. Woodson, pinpoint this idea of fugitive pedagogy and and crowns Carter G. Woodson as being, you know, the inspiration of this or the key symbol of it. Now what what he what Jarvis Givens is saying is that it was always illegal in the United States, you know, to teach a slave to read and write. Why? That made them dangerous, right? If they could read or write, couldn't, couldn't, couldn't even read the Bible, which was foisted upon us, right? So that was always a danger. But these teachers, I look back at my education, and I write about this too, but I call it a dual education. Our teachers made sure that we not only learned English literature, but we learned black literature, that we not only sang the national anthem, but we sang the Negro national anthem as well. That we recited poems that I can meet people, African-Americans today, it's a number of times. I can meet them if they are my same age, we can start reciting the same poem, we'll make the same hand gestures. Wow. So there was this dual education going on all the time, which said, you know, you are somebody. You have a tradition, and we celebrated that. And those teachers were practicing fugitive pedagogy, what, what Jarvis Gibbons called, because it's an education that's meant to uplift the spirit as well, to uplift, you know, self-esteem. So when I say these black women teachers, I mean each one of them. Just, just you know, take you aside, you know, you're, I saw your interest in this. Now I want you to read this on the side. I'm going to bring you this tomorrow. That was always going on, you know, and, and it was lovely. Yeah. Yeah. And do you think uplifting the spirit is something that, you, that, sh that, that professors and teachers can center as a goal? I hope so. Me too. Because yeah. they should, yeah. they should they recognize should their students are human beings, you know. So, <laughs> right? so here we are, we teach in religious studies departments. Yeah. And the one thing you don't want to be there is, you know, accused of being, you know, you've got too much affinity for your subject matter. 
right. as though you could be totally objective, uh, and some of them I uh, assume are. But <laughs> <laughs> sure, a wink and a wink. And, yeah, uh, you know you're you're supposed to have this distance, yeah. especially you know we we talk about tantric Buddhism, something esoteric. We talk about Buddhism that that privileges experience. You know, how can that be something that you that counts in yeah. in, the, in academia? Yeah, but you know, so already sus- under suspicion, right? But so I don't want to convert those students, but I want those students to find their true selves, which I think are compassionate and capable. Yeah. You know? I want yeah. to help them discover that. Yeah. So yep. the teachers are in a dilemma here. <laughs> How far can we go? Transgressive. <laughs> yep. Yep. Well, yeah. I mean, Teaching is transgressive, right? It can be. We hope teaching it is. to transgress. Good old Bell Hooks. Bell Hooks. Yeah. <laughs> May she rest in power. Yeah. Yeah. So this is, this is such a nice segue to the next kind of question. What are, like, I'm interested in knowing from you what you think are some of the ways that professors and teachers can work against oppression when oppression has so often been so structurally built into our systems, right? We could, we are teaching in universities that themselves are hierarchies and we are reminded of it regularly, right? You're, this person's not tenured and this Absolutely. one is, and this one's in this stream and that one's not. And, da, da, da. and you know, and, and that applies both among the faculty, among the students, among like on all these levels and then add race, add class, add gender, add all the things. They're all operating all the time. So what? How can we do it? Like, how can we do that well, big work? Okay. It's a big question. <laughs> and I think a <laughs> yeah. lot depends on the individual instructor, what they're willing to bring and share. Yeah. And also depends on the schools, the places where we teach. Yeah. Uh, I've always thought that I was fortunate not to go on to a big graduate institution. Because there's there's more freedom at an undergraduate place to follow more general, shall I say, interest, because you're interested in liberal arts. So the parents of those students didn't send them to vocational schools. They sent them to liberal arts school to sort of broaden their perspective, right? So that's that's already a good thing. Yet what goes on in the classroom, classrooms are structured. So, you know, teachers usually sit at the front, <laughs> you know, and there's, there's discipline. You know, the students are supposed to be quiet <laughs> and listen, top down, you know, that kind of. So I think when I say it depends on the individual, you know, I think a lot has to do with what that person uh, thinks of themselves and their location and how they can modify that. I, I, here, there, I'm inspired by a teacher who really takes Paula Freire to heart. <laughs> if you walk past her classroom, you see these groups of students. You know? Nobody's sitting in rows. <laughs> Nobody's looking at the front. You know, there are these different discussions going on. <laughs> uh, now, uh-huh. I don't do it that way, but I admire that she pulls it off. <laughs> 
Those things are hard, though. I mean, we, we, yeah, we, it's interesting. We here at U of T Mississauga, I teach at University of Toronto, uh-huh. Mississauga uh-huh. in Canada. And um, we designed a couple of years ago, these active learning classrooms, right? So we got, you know, there was money. So there was time and money to build the new active learning classrooms, which were built with, you know, these big round tables for, for learning pods and lots of screens. And I, I requested to teach in one once and I was imme- immediately regretted it. Like week two, I was like, send me back to a lecture oh, really? please because it was I mean it actually would be wonderful and I can see that it would be wonderful but but what we would have to do with our lecture material to transfer it effectively into that mode would be huge right so you'd almost have you have to I came back to the idea that like I'll do it again sometime but I'll design a new course for that space mm-hmm. not try to take the old lecture <laughs> and transplant it into the uh into the active learning classroom, but, but, um, yeah, what, so what did your, or what do your classrooms look like? What did they, or, I mean, what are the, some of the institutions that you remember or like Wesleyan, what, what was it like? Was it small classes mostly? Was it how many students? How did you, how did you organize? So in those, in those early days, there was such an interest in Buddhism. I couldn't believe it. I would, I would have 90 students in a class and two or three hundred on a wait list. Wow. And I taught the class every year, every spring. Uh, so, but then that, after that, that first sort of massive course, and I capped it, I think I capped it at 95 because I just couldn't remember the names. <laughs> you know? And then it got smaller and smaller, like I couldn't remember more than 60. And six, I couldn't remember. But then there were these spinoff courses. Uh, from the intro. If you'd taken the intro, then you could take women in Buddhist lit, Tibetan Buddhism, Buddhism in America, socially engaged Buddhism. And those would be seminars capped at 19, right? Because I think Wesleyan's marketing wanted to say that. How many mm-hmm. classes were less than 20? Mm-hmm. <laughs> capped at 19. Mm-hmm. So then I had these seminars and and they were just lovely mm-hmm. because because one, the students at Wesleyan always read the material, so cool. that was just a lovely environment. Yeah. I mean, I could I could go to the library at two in the morning, and people would be reading my, a text. I don't know what they'd been doing before that, but they were reading <laughs> the assignment, reading, and so that was lovely. But then you would have these; they were thoughtful. Yeah, and so my 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 mission turned out to be helping them discover what they knew and helping them find the tools to research it further. So that was just a pleasure of yeah. teaching these, these really bright students. You know? yeah. Super. The students here have, long, have a, a longer traje- trajectory, right? And so it's necessary more to meet with them more regularly and and suggest more things and just you know get to know them a little bit more and boost them a little yeah yeah uh, and so i get to practice that now i do think teaching in university settings altogether and teaching dharma center is very different i'm sure yeah what's the what is the, what are the big differences for you in those two contexts well what i see well i'm freer <laughs> right? uh-huh. Because in, in which, huh? In which one are you freer? I'm in freer the in the Dharma Center yeah. because 
they're the just the students come in they have a certain vocabulary already you know we can talk about things easier i think one of the things that's difficult about our particular interest in buddhism and tibetan buddhism as opposed to other kinds of disciplines is that there's a language you know mm-hmm. there there's terminology and language that needs to be mastered in order for you to communicate really yeah. well with students. So there's that hurdle to get over. That's one of the reasons that at Wesleyan and so forth, I've developed these courses that that really privilege narrative, that talk about Tibetan numtar, you know, that mm. talk about stories, mm-hmm. which I think are... Like sacred biographies and narrative and narrativizing lives. They convey what you're trying to say, right? So I like I I pair Milarepa and, and Narapa. They read both of those, you know, and they seem to be about totally different personalities, but the main core is about was singular self, mm-hmm. you know, attachment to self or mm-hmm. you know uh, low self esteem and exuberant self-esteem you know but it's always self self something yeah so they can get that at that level and so i think stories are really important in the in the in the in the university setting I saw one assignment we read about actually in preparation for today that was just so incredibly creative. So I Imagine want to talk about your sixth century BC woman. Yes. So you you have this assignment where you imagine yourself as this as a sixth century BCE Indian woman. Mm-hmm. Young or old, daughter, wife, widow, etc. Their choice, I guess. Mm-hmm. One day a Buddhist nun appears in your village or town, teaching the Buddha's doctrine and inviting you to join the order. What would be your response? Why? It's wonderful. What, an, what a wonderful assignment. And then you say, you say this question is designed to invite your creativity I'm as well as to help things. you to bring together much of the material we've covered thus far. It is designed, therefore, to have you do the three distinct things. So one, to portray and comment upon a given woman's social situation. To two, deftly summarize the Buddha's main teachings. And three, to react to the teachings, attractiveness, or unattractiveness, given the circumstances you've initially posited. Mm-hmm. And make sure your essay addresses all three of the above. Jan, wow. What an incredible oh, I'm glad you like it. The it's students amazing. love that assignment. They love it. They're thinking about the story before they get out of the classroom. Right. It's, it's an ideal way. You know, we've talked, we've used Basham. We've talked about uh, Indian geography. We've talked about the, the pre-Buddhist uh, settings and cultural things. And then I introduced, you know, the week before, I said, now, you know, but even in Basham, we've gone through Indian society. But women are talked about where in sort of two paragraphs at the end of the chapter, right? And widows, forget them. They're tough. all right. So they're ready, you know, and, and they have to succinctly, uh, they have to do this in two to three pages, right? So when they give the Buddha's teaching, they have to think for themselves of all of that Buddhism we've talked about. What's the colonel teaching? What's that nun going to say? You know, and then depending upon whether they've called them, whether they've been a girl or they're a widow or they've situated themselves in Indian Aryan society, what would be their response? 
and and you know they don't have to choose to join the Buddhist order. Lots of yeah. them don't. Really? They, well, I'm so curious. Did some not? Yeah. They don't because they like the proposed husband. The family's arranged for them. <laughs> <Sure. or they've, laughs> sure. They they are not convinced of it, or they will finish what they vow to do and then become nuns later. You know, stories. Stories work. So I come to my classes on philosophy and philology because I loved words, right? And so I think that by the time I have just a few key words with classes at the university setting, that, that I, can, I can translate some of what Buddhism's intent is what it's meaning, it, what the Buddha actually taught, what the Buddha taught, you know, in Raoulis kind of thing, uh, by, by carefully diagnosing the terminology. So I come as a philologist and a philosopher, and, and it's sort of my protection against the academics who say, oh, you seem just to be in love with this Buddha stuff. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I'm in love with it. It makes sense to me. Yeah. It makes sense. Culturally, yeah. I'm African-American, but if I want to solve a problem, Buddhism has a lot of answers. Yeah. I think it's very, it was very freeing. I mean, I, when I read um, Dreaming Me with, with undergrad students here in Toronto uh, in two different classes, they always found it really, you know, like one of the questions was, how, you know, what does it mean to be Black, Baptist, and Buddhist? How, how, why are those all part of this subtitle? And why, like, what's important about this statement of identity? And that I think it's actually very freeing for them to also see that those things can go beside each other and alongside each other. And that's okay. You don't, Jan Willis didn't choose to stop being Baptist and become Buddhist. She sees herself in the end as both. And that's, that's hers. That's an amazing and beautiful story to own. Oh, we read your article teaching Buddhism in the Western Academy as we were preparing for this podcast. And I so agree with you. And it was articulated so well. One of my concerns, um, like amongst, you know, I, I teach in a historical studies department, but alongside a lot of, um, you know, history of religions kind mm-hmm. of faculty, they're all brilliant, but you're totally correct that many, I've had many conversations in which it's clear that um, they, some people st- still sort of think, and you, you say it better than I will, so I'm going to quote you here, the, the misguided misperception that scholarly engagement within a religious studies department, if possible at all, necessitates complete objectivity from the subject matter, even downright, though often denied, hostility towards it. Mm. You're so right, right? Like, I honestly have come away from sort of other lectures thinking, wait, were, were you trying to teach them that, like, religion is bad, <laughs> right? Like, that's our message. Religion is bad, children, run. Um, and, you know, like, sure, Marx had a point, opiate of the people, yada, yada, got it. We can teach that. We should talk about it. And yet, like, religion is still fertile ground for for many people's self-identity, for uplift, for possibilities it's been around many many centuries after all and seems to have a lot of be doing something right so the other technique a technique uh, it's not a technique but you know i give that assignment those those assignments about standing in another display i also give them practicums you know Mm. and it's there was some frowning about that you know i send them out i said okay go to such and such this is a methodist church right up there go 
and write about it, you know, and we do the little anthropological thing, you know, field study, da da da. And you know, you know, you can cop to your position, you're a student, this is an assignment, that's all right. But just go and see what happens. And they come back all excited. Mm-hmm. You know? mm-hmm. That was really interesting. And Professor Willis, they fed us afterwards. I said, mm-hmm. Good Southern food, you know, they feed you at the black Methodist church. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so that's also a, go and get a little experience before you denounce it out of hand, you know? Yeah. People yeah. are getting something. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Absolutely. So have you noticed, I mean, we're, so we're in this time, of course, we're still in the kind of the pandemic that won't end, <laughs> yeah. right? Um, so I wonder if you have any thoughts for us, reflections on like, What's changing? And I know, like, I know, like, a lot of us have were kind of abruptly forced into, you know, teaching online. And many of us, by the way, are hoping to see an end to that soon. So I'm not, I don't, this is not a question about how can we teach online, but, but it has, I feel like the pandemic is forcing many of us to really reconcile with like, what is the point? <laughs> what is the point here? What is the purpose here? And what can we actually do in university classrooms? Right. And if, and, you know, cause that has to be a fundamental question as we reimagine our classrooms online, like what care, what can we do? What carries forward? How can we design these experiences uh, for students? But what do you think is changing in our approach to teaching? What gives you hope that, that we might be, we might be learning something here? (laughs) Well, I think we have to, since it's here, it's a fact. (laughs) Like suffering is a fact. Mm. (laughs) Um. We can use it as an opportunity for being more creative, you know. This Mm. is one way. So if our classrooms taught discipline and and subjugation, (laughs) you know, and power, we can use this as an opportunity to let go of some of those things and to have our students be, you know, more creative, which is what we might have hoped would happen in the classroom if it were less structured. So it's a less structured now. (laughs) Let's see if we can come up with assignments and things that they might do that would actually encourage them to. I mean, here we we have it. This is a fact. We'd better try to figure out creative ways to use it, you know. So I don't want to say the students are left on their own. I think that we should use it as an occasion to come up with other ways of teaching and learning. Yeah. And how to do it is still the question. Yeah, how but to do but it creativ- the creativity should be in there, right? Like you, like we just, the, the handbook isn't going to work anyways, so we might as well throw it out. Right. <laughs> yeah. I think so. And then how did you teach mandalas? Is that a, I, I, that's just a real interest of mine, but what did you do with mandala teaching and making and such. Can you tell us a bit about that? Well, we, we read, uh, hmm, I don't know, two or three things. <laughs> I have such lovely groups of diverse hands hmm. because I, I say, this is what's going on. Yeah. They read, they read the text. They're imagining Mount Meru and the continents and all of this. And this is what they're doing. And then, then they all, I bring my mandala set uh-huh. <laughs> one session to the, of the class and uh-huh. we go around the room and they love it because it's hands on. Yeah. 
And then I say, but you can do it without all of this paraphernalia. Mm -hmm. You can do it with just a rice grain. Here, take one. And Mm -hmm. then I teach them how to do it. And then I've got these lovely, you know, black, chocolate, soft brown, going around, hands around the room Mm -hmm. of mandalas. Mm. And they have a different sense then of mandalas not only being three-dimensional, but of what they mean. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's what, something, if we get back to classrooms, I want to teach more with, you know, getting students to make mandalas and play with art uh-huh. making. That's one of my interests. And sometimes um, you can have them draw with color, you know, yeah. like imagine it's a room and a house and you go in this room and you work on this. Yeah. What's, what color is that? What's your mind like? Yeah. 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 <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, you've, you've taught it for a long time. So what are some of the possibilities that you feel haven't been adequately like embraced yet? Cause we, cause some, you know, we got sort, I I wonder sometimes if we haven't gotten sort of, um, you know, like, like we're accidentally teaching an old story when it comes to Buddhism that pitches it as, you know, more historical than contemporary, more textual than ritual, even though we pretend to say, oh, but ritual matters a lot too, art matters a lot too, we often go back to like, but textual tradition, mm-hmm. monks, nuns, done, mm-hmm. right? And I, so, you know, and, th- but there's, of course, there's scholars, there's many scholars who don't do that, but, but our textbooks still so, sort of repeat those tropes. So, you know, yeah, what would be important to carry forward in Intro to Buddhism? Uh, maybe an assign, uh, the person should think about um, another assignment that I give students. I say, <laughs> we're just talking, it's not an assignment. I say, you know, 10, 20 years from now, you won't remember all these Marian dates and this, that, and the other. What do you think you'll carry forth as the most important teaching of the Buddha. And, you know, I think early on they're saying things like, they come into the class, some of them might say wisdom, emptiness, you know, they don't understand any of that, but, you know, they've they've read it somewhere in there. But what do you really think is the heart of the teaching? And, you know, then, then later they say, they're saying four noble truths, they'll remember that. Yeah. But I, so I have I would have that person think about that, but that clearly seems to be a one way thing. You know, I want them to get this about Buddhism, and I, I maybe something that's important to them would be uh, central and interesting to the students. Um, I think that's a really difficult one in terms of planning. I make sure that I do background, I do life, I do central teachings. That's enough for a semester. Yeah. Oh, that is. That's quite enough. You're right. You're right. One, one last thing. Uh, to make it more current, there's a lot of stuff now. There's lots of different ways. People are recasting stories of these people that, in a way that they wish, they, yeah. you know, feminist way, you know, putting yeah. gender first and opportunities, this, you know. And then yeah. She was overlooked, but... And yeah. I sort of think that that rewriting is dangerous, you know, mm. uh, but but to answer your question, make it more relevant. I, I often pair uh, what the Buddha taught while Polaraula at the beginning. Mm-hmm. I say, forget the Pali. It's 99 pages. You can do this. Mm-hmm. And then 
Steve Bachelor is at the end. Mm. Listen without beliefs. Mm-hmm. And you'd be um, surprised at the discussion that comes up with that pairing. Yeah. Some think, okay, this guy, Bachelor said it much better. <laughs> and some <laughs> say, this arrogance. <laughs> yeah. So, so it gives them a great discussion because they're they're themselves then really wrestling with yes. matters of interpretation and yeah, who has the right to stake those claims too. I wanted to ask a question and it's something we've already touched on a bit because you brought up kind of, you know, your own, like your own origin story and, and how you've become who you are through, you know, being uplifted so many times. So pedagogy itself and this structure of a university or college system that many of us are in, learning in, teaching in, how can pedagogy itself or teaching, how can classrooms be anti-racist and is that a is that a possibility is that a thing is that an expectation we can ask from them and what would be some ideas for for making a classroom or a course you know an anti-racist movement or a possibility I think from the beginning um if we if we touch each other as human beings uh if we have um, some sense that we all are interconnected, <laughs> that this becomes sort of a natural outcome. You know, uh, Martin Luther King, famously, you know, all life is in, interrelated, caught in an inestimable. All right. There's that. There's there's the Buddhism one too. I I can I have at times for talks on Zoom gone through King this the Buddha this King this Buddha this King this Dhammapada verse five. So I say when I'm asking those students to think about what's important to them, one of the verses that I always uh, um, that I hear and that I think it's my favorite Dhammapada one eight three Dhammapada one eight three. You know. If we were a Christian, uh, um, so I'm jumping about, but Christianity, I think, Matthew 25, uh, uh, 24 through 29, thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and all all thy mind. Okay. And the second is like, like unto it, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself, right? I think that this is the most concise statement of Christian creed and practice, right? The creed is love God. The practice is love your neighbor. And loving your neighbor shows the first. Okay, for Buddhism, I think that's Dhammapada 183, which says, do no harm, practice virtue, discipline the mind. This is the teaching of all the Buddhas. I think that summarizes the whole thing. And if if you can get that flavor of the students, it's the whole kit and caboodle right yeah. there. Yeah. And so doing no harm, right, is right there. It's doing. It's Martin Luther King's nonviolent resistance. It not it's not passive. I have to tell students, it's not P-A-S-S, right? It's P-A-C-I, 
Bing. All right, Pacific, but not passive, right? Because we're all in this together and we'll all go down together unless we can learn to live together, right? There have been world religions, different teachings on this, but it's very simple. Hatred begets only hatred. Dhammapada 5, Martin Luther King, right? Nonviolence is the way to go. Do no harm. But practice virtue. I say to students, you can't call up your friends and say, what you doing? Oh, I'm over here practicing virtue. <laughs> you know, by yourself. Mm-mm. It involves relationship. People. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. To practice virtue means you're in action with others. Yeah. So it's not enough to say you're, oh, I'm not racist. That doesn't apply to me. you got to practice anti-racism. Because silence is complicit. Absolutely, yeah. So you've got to do something. I encourage people to do their best to do it nonviolently. That's just be creative. But you've got to do. We're all connected. I can't be who I am until you are who you ought to be. And you can't be who you ought to be until I am who I ought to be. It's so clear. It's so clear, dear. Lama is with me. It's so clear, dear. Gotta <laughs> <laughs> put that deal on in. Love um, it. And also, like, diagnosing poverty as just an illness is missing something because it's not an illness. It's not an individual illness. It's a societal, systemic issue that then, right? Like that. Right. That needs King used healing. To, he used to say there are three evils of society: over consumerism. Um, militarism and racism. Now, in Buddhism, that racism would be the ignorance. Huh? Mm-hmm. The militarism is hatred, and the consumerism is greed, right? But in his last year, he changed consumerism to poverty. Oh, it's Brian Stevenson saying, the more I work, Brian Stevenson, the lawyer, uh, init- uh, equal justice initiative, who says, the more I do this work, the more I see that the opposite of wealth is not poverty. The opposite of wealth is justice. Wow. King was yeah. there. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> so I've had these amazing teachers. Yeah. In Emma Pay, in the Buddha, in Toni Morrison, in James Baldwin, and all those black women. Mm-hmm. They've inspired me. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's nothing to do but to keep doing it yeah yeah thank you so much for doing it thank you so much for <laughs> well, uh, thank yeah. you so much for for doing that i mean for also like teaching in such an open creative brave manner for so long that that like thank you really I also love how you've immersed yourself. I mean, your your life has been a story also of immersing yourself in social justice movements and the teachings of Martin Luther King. And yeah, you brought up also, you were holding a photo. They, our listeners couldn't see it, oh, but yes. you were holding a photo of Martin Luther King. Up, and we've Han. also just seen Thich Nhat Hanh's passage just a few days ago, actually. So yeah. we're just in the, it, we're in the kind of immediate few days after losing Thich Nhat Hanh from this plane. So... Yeah, and they Baptist were Baptist Buddhist. Yeah. Baptist and Buddhist together. Yeah. They were brothers. Amazing. Well, 
I think also every time I read your work, which I, as Janet Gyatso said, is just some of the clearest and most persuasive writing we get in academia. Like it's clear, accessible, and still all the things. And and now hearing you speak, um, you manage so skillfully to um, ultimately also make this last century, which could also be a century of pain, into a century of a lot of hope, right? Because there's actually a lot of beauty in everything you've said. So thank you so much. All right. Well, that's it for this episode of The Circled Square. Thank you so much, Jan, for being here today. Thank you. Thank you. I've enjoyed this talk. <laughs>